Welcome to 2038. I'm Max Reed. I'm David Wallace-Wells. In the future, there will be a war for the internet. This is Anne Shaumina. In the year 2038, Antarctica, what remains of it anyway, has been cut up into two halves after a proxy war fought by AI-powered quadcopters and self-driving cars. One half belongs to the LibreWeb, a U.S.-led federation of internet-savvy states promoting a supposedly free but surveilled internet rife with hate groups and hyperpartisans. The other half belongs to the TranquilNet, a China-led alliance of nations committed to a secure and tranquil internet free from dissent and disagreement. Mutual distrust between the LibreWeb and the TranquilNet has broken off digital ties and two parallel internets operate between two superpowers responsible for the world's digital infrastructure. Welcome to the world's first digital Cold War. Hi, I'm An Shaumina, author of Memes to Movements. So uh, I think my first question is, how is my experience of the internet as a regular user of it different uh, in this world? Yeah, I think um, uh, it depends on which side you're on. <laughs> well, let's start with the LibreWeb. Let's the assume Libre I'm an American. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm in New York City. Maybe sure. I'm a journalist, maybe okay. not. Uh, okay. And I, si- I open my laptop and I sign on. What am I, I looking at? How am I experiencing yeah, it? Yeah, well, I imagine, first of all, um, one of the ways, uh, you know, the, the progression of real ID um, and the, the fact that so much of our offline selves is tied to online selves, you'd probably have to log in using a thumbprint or retina scan mm-hmm. so it knows who you are. Yeah. And then what I imagine is with the death of net neutrality, it's going to depend um, very much on who you are. Um, and so um, if you are a white male, um, you might have the full Libre web, uh, mm-hmm. the full like free internet. But you know, looking at the history of how so much of uh, the kind of freedom rhetoric actually plays out is that it might actually be a very segregated experience. So uh, me as an Asian woman might actually have a completely different experience from you. I might have a throttled internet. It might be hard for me to access certain services. And for other people, though, it might look and act um, completely the same. If you try to access stuff outside of the LibreWeb, um, I think it might look different. <laughs> you might not be able to get videos. Um, you might not be able to, to access articles. You may not even be aware there's another whole other internet out there by this stage. So when you say that I, as a white man, would have access to more of it than, than you potentially, do you think that there's specifically racialized segregation from the top? Is that sort of a cultural effect that different identity groups move to different segments of it? Is it a class thing where because I can pay for more of it theoretically that I would access more of it? Right. I would expect it to to look like uh, historic patterns of, of separation. So it would be a mix of race, class, and gender kind of intersecting. So if you have the the kind of privilege and access to to get the full LibreWeb experience, um, all the more power to you. <laughs> um, but for, for most people, if we're going to see the, the emergence of uh, digital ghettos, um, mm-hmm. of digital segregation, um, as a response um, to kind of the, the hyper-partisanship of the internet, that we get kind of these heavy-handed responses, both from the top, but then also that communities start to form uh, different alliances and kind of safe harbors to ensure that they have safe spaces as well. And this is the LibreWeb. In the LibreWeb. So what's the, the, the non-LibreWeb? How's that, how's that work? How's it, act, how's, it, <laughs> how's it substantially different, right? The tranquil net. Um, uh, so the, the current way uh, that the Chinese internet works is that you have a number of different platforms and ISPs um, that have heavy uh, guidance and, and uh, potential sanctions from, from government powers. And so we would expect something similar in the tranquil net where uh, you have a kind of heavy-handed approach um, from, from governments um, and that uh, they kind of dictate what kind of discourse is allowed on the tranquil net and what kind is not. Um, and so um, this is ostensibly to allow for a tranquil internet um, where there's no dissent, no disagreement, no protest. It's, it's ostensibly safer. There's no misinformation anymore. Uh, but uh, that's because the narrative is entirely controlled by, by one power. One component of your vision was this sort of idea that LibreWeb is 
it seems to be kind of a site of constant political battle between partisans within the sort of libre web liberal democratic space. I mean, it's, it sounds frankly like kind of an awful internet um, and maybe one that's not all that different from the one we're on right now. Yeah, I think that's the risk. I think the, the risk is um, is right now um, we're seeing the rhetoric of, of a neutral internet space or a free internet space um, is um, is being manipulated and, and is actually not all that neutral. Um, that that um, all our internet spaces have, have a politics behind them. Uh, we're seeing emergence of hate groups. Uh, we're seeing uh, rife partisanship. We're seeing a ton of misinformation around from everything from politics to public health with real-world consequences on elections and public health. Um, so this is ostensibly neutral internet um, is actually it's actually quite problematic. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I do think we, you know, within uh, both the U.S. system and, and more internationally is to recognize that and think about um, other ways that the politics of the internet might be reframed and defined. So in some ways, it's really an extension of the way that we think of these two internets today, which is one is dominated by corporate interests and one is dominated by a more heavy-handed state presence. That's what you can imagine, yeah. So in some ways, um, this is uh, an extension of what we see as some of the patterns of how the internet's developing in different ways um, and uh, and recognizing that uh, there are two, at least two internets um, and actually many more, um, but they all have different politics behind them. Um, one thing that you mentioned is that the uh, both of sort of both of these internets are heavily surveilled. So, uh, how, how is that surveillance accomplished, and uh, sort of what in in what kinds of purposes? Yeah, so I would imagine um, in the labor web, um, it said the surveillance would be identity based, um, mm-hmm. and so different communities would have different levels of surveillance, and then responses to that surveillance. So, um, I'm interested in what does digital stop and frisk look like um, in this context? Um, who uh, might face consequences for the surveillance? I think one of the things we're aware of is um, there is widespread surveillance um, you know, across the internet, um, but there's not as much in terms of consequences. And so um, how does that actually play out? I think we should expect it to to be similar to how um, city-level surveillance works. It's often um, it's often stratified and dependent on, on your income level and, and your racial background. Um, on the tranquil net, again, if we're looking at how surveillance already works, um, it's probably going to be more active in terms of censorship. Um, it might be more broad-based, um, affects everybody, and affects the sort of speech you're allowed to have. And so these sounds to me like these are basically two different dystopian visions of the future of the Internet. Is there in your 2038 uh, like a third space that has some more utopian energy? Is there a way to get outside of these two internets? Yeah, I'm imagining, um, just as we think about um, you know, the historic Cold War, there might be digital neutral zones. Um, um, imagine places like Singapore, Kenya, Ghana, places that already have strong uh, digital cultures and, and the resources to develop alternative infrastructures. You might actually see a different vision of the internet um, that is that plays out over the infrastructure, that plays out through, um, uh, through resistance spaces. Um, it might be a detente. It might be a tense relationship. Um, but it might be a digital neutral zone. Uh, and almost certainly we'll see the evolution of mesh networks as kind of digital isolationists taking harbor from any of these visions might actually set up their own uh, their own world as well. Walk us through what a mesh network is and why we would want one or need one in a world like this. Sure. So mesh network, it's, it's almost like an intranet, but it's um, based on uh, actual infrastructure. So within a city or a neighborhood, people will set up wireless networks that connect with each other, but don't necessarily connect to the broader internet. Um, so with mesh networks, you're allowed to, you know, you have the ability to control your internet experience. Um, there's a different governance structure. And um, because it's not connected to the broader web, um, it's therefore not, um, not under in- the influence um, of broader internet politics. Um, and so we can imagine um, that uh, that folks who want to opt out from these two visions might might want to set up their own mesh networks uh, to to resist this. So just to ask a totally um, kind of hard headed question. Sure. Um, if a mesh network is not connected to the broader Internet, does that mean that it does not have access to like the New York Times website or, you know, 
anything like that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it would be uh, kind of its own its own community. Um, and it would be, um, uh, you know, some mesh networks now, um, they do have, uh, you know, a single point of access um, so they can control what goes in and out. You know, it's one of the more extreme ones that currently exists, which is not quite a mesh network, but is a is an intranet of sorts. Um, it's, it's in Cuba uh, where they have a, kind of a USB and slash mesh network. And so people will, will download, it's called Paquete Semanal, it's a, the weekly packet. People will download outside media and then distribute it internally in Cuba. So we, we can imagine practices like that would, would, would probably continue in some way. And what about the cultures of the internet in those places? How are they different from the ones that say I might know? Um, so I think I think Korea is the most pronounced, uh, where um, you already do have alternative kind of messaging platforms. In Korea, you have a, a platform called Kakao Talk, which is already quite popular, and it's really just it's a, it's like a WhatsApp messaging service, um, but it's really just used by Koreans. Um, in places like Kenya, um, what you see is um, the development of of tech that is designed that they say is designed by and for Africa, um, and so um, it's different tools, um, it's different uh, mobile apps that might be designed for um, for riding around on motorcycle taxis, things like that, and so because of that rich ecosystem, you might imagine that um, by 2038, um, this will be much more developed and is already taking the, the semblance of, of a, um, a different internet experience um, than the global internet, um, but by 2038 may, uh, might actually be um, a separate internet experience. These uh, sort of non-aligned countries, um, y- you know, I mean, one thing that's so striking about this vision is that if I'm an American accessing the internet through the Libra web, I have no access to this, the sort of memes and culture and ideas on the tranquil web. So if I'm in Kenya, say, uh, or Singapore, South Korea, am I able to access either of them? Am I able to access both of them? Or am I, am I dealing only with kind of my own internet and maybe other the other non-aligned countries. Yeah, I would imagine it's it's um, in this kind of very rigid view um, in 2038, it might already be um, difficult to access outside the internet. Um, we're already seeing um, in places like China and Iran, um, it's very difficult for people to access um, content um, outside of their sphere. Uh, with the implementation of GDPR in the EU, um, something that's very striking for me and that's part of what informs this vision is when I send articles to people, to my friends in the EU uh, from news sites, sometimes they won't be able to access them or they don't want to access them because the new site hasn't been able to to update and comply with the GDPR standards. And so we're already seeing this uh, start out in kind of both small scale and large scale. So I'd imagine in these digital neutral zones, um, it would be um, it would be much more difficult. I mean, I'm actually sort of interested in, in the EU in this um, world because it has sort of tried to strike a different path than the U.S. in terms of how it responds to and interacts with the internet. Um, but it seems to me that maybe in this vision, it finds itself kind of unable to, to be as independent as it wants to be. Yeah, I think one of the things about this vision is recognizing that um, the power of states is also in the power of who controls infrastructure. Um, and so the EU's um, uh, methods right now are based on market regulation and negotiating, kind of collective negotiating power. Um, but you're not seeing as much of this kind of alternative infrastructure. Um, and so um, so part of this vision is thinking about what happens when um, when actual infrastructure, um, internet infrastructure comes into play in, in, in kind of geopolitics. And it would just become that much more expensive to build your own rules because you have to build your own infrastructure. You literally have to build infrastructure. Um, and when you think about like the raw materials, um, the, the process of laying down cable, setting up satellites, you know, building the phones and laptops, uh, like there are very few places where that can actually happen. And literally when you think about our phones and laptops, those are all built in one place in the world right now in Shenzhen and China. Is the idea that I could, um, or say a PLA group in China could attack um, the American internet, the Libra web from China, would there have to be, would I have to be physically on the American infrastructure? Yeah, I, I mean, you can imagine by 2038, like part of what makes um, makes these attacks possible is interoperability. 
um, and the fact that there's a common infrastructure and a common data structures, all right? And so, uh, you know, we're already seeing the, the kind of story of Russian propaganda playing out um, on U.S. networks. That's because they have access to U.S. networks, mm-hmm. and, um, and there's a simple way to communicate. But if you can imagine by 2038, um, if the physical infrastructure is blocked off, um, and we already see this play out in in, um, in places like China where they control um, the, the the cables that go in and out of the country and therefore have much more control over over who's coming in, um, then it would be extremely difficult to actually um, to actually influence each other. Um, and you can imagine that this would be framed as a security play mm-hmm. um, as a way to to resist outside efforts, but then could also then be used to to crack down on internal dissent as well. I mean, this seems to me that uh, for all the sort of uh, high-minded invocation of free speech on the Libra web that politicians and um, people in charge of infrastructure could make a strong case that they need to have the same kind of infrastructural control that China does to prevent uh, informational attacks, more or less. You can imagine that. You're already seeing uh, rhetoric um, about uh, the dangerousness of protests um, in physical space. Um, You're already seeing rhetoric and and actual laws being played out um, in many, um, even democratic countries, that are saying that fake news is such a problem that we need absolutely need to control the internet. So if you can imagine this rhetoric kind of playing out and uh, and kind of laws coming together that are using this moment um, of uh, misinformation and awareness about misinformation to effectively censor the internet, um, uh, you can imagine the Libre web might um, look free but actually would not uh, be all that Libre after all. <laughs> um, I'm sort of interested too in the place of Russia in all this, you know, as because right now they obviously, the country seems to be the biggest boogie man uh, in terms of internet warfare, so to speak. But uh, in your vision, it, it sort of disappears as, the, as the, the contrast between the Libra web and the Tranquil web becomes more stark. Yeah, I think, I think one thing about uh, Russia's attacks, the, the, the known attacks at least, um, is that they're very much based on, on small groups um, who are manipulating media and social media to influence discourse. Um, and uh, in some ways, um, you know, a lot of security, internet security researchers have written about this. It's the play of a country that needs to look stronger than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine over time um, that as people become used to this, these sorts of mimetic uh, propaganda campaigns, uh, that they'll start to lose influence. Um, and so um, in this vision, uh, maybe Russia would, um, you know, just as in the, the previous Cold War, might, might ally uh, with the tranquil net. Mm-hmm. Um, but then because it has access to uh, much more cold spaces, would, would eventually just um, become largely server farms uh, for, <laughs> for the larger uh, digital infrastructure. So those kinds of attacks um, now feel like they are essentially political attacks conducted on the internet. Is that how you see the attacks of 2038 in this new kind of Cold War playing out? Or is it a matter of the internet's making internet based attacks, if that makes sense. Um, I think um, I think if we look at history of the Cold War, it, it was very much as much a game of propaganda as it was of, of the actual threat of destruction and proxy wars. Um, and so I would imagine um, we would see kind of new forms of propaganda and, and media influence um, that are we're already seeing what the new vectors might be. They might be VR, AR. Uh, they might be voice-activated UIs. Um, they might be all our wearables. Um, the more points of contact that we have with media, the more opportunities there are for, for propagandizing those spaces. Um, and at the core here, I mean, one of the things that these two superpowers, uh, broadly speaking, are, are kind of fighting over is access to resources, I guess? Yes, I think so. I think the ability to, to build the internet, right, relies on, on a limited number of mines, you know, tin and coal town mines, um, the ability to lay down fiber optic infrastructure. And so, um, uh, and then, you know, and then over time, I'm, I'm assuming this is, this might happen as uh, cryptocurrency might become more, more um, taken up by, by governments and become actual fungible currencies, um, that the ability 
ability to, to actually mine that and actually you know, transfer that money and, and build an economy uh, would be limited to the infrastructure that you can build. And so um, in some ways, yeah, it's a reminder that the Internet is, is, is bound by physical space and uh, the, the ability to use it and use it effectively um, is limited to, to the resources that we have access to, the physical resources we have access to. It seems as though in this vision, the mimetic attacks that we're talking about and the propaganda attacks, like the kinds of things that we saw in the last election that people are worrying about now, kind of take a backseat to the specific attacks on self-driving cars, on uh, power grids, on that kind of thing. Yeah. It might, it might. Um, and, and if only because uh, this is kind of mimetic propaganda um, relied on surprise and, and people not being familiar with the techniques. Um, and you look at the history of propaganda in general um, as, as a medium like radio, which was very powerful for propaganda in the 40s, right? Uh, as people get more used to it, they regulate it more, it becomes less effective. Um, so, or it becomes a sort of baseline level becomes, of effective that we just that we just assume is natural. That's absolutely right as well. Um, so this would it would kind of might might just be the hum in the background. Right. You can imagine deep fakes playing out. Um, that you know, there's this rhetoric right now that deep fakes are going to kill truth. Um, I'm suspicious of that claim. Uh, but on the other hand, if if all media is subject to suspicion. Um, the effect of propaganda may be um, may be limited. Um, it may be that we're everything we're suspicious of everything, and so it might start to take a new shape and form yeah. to the media that we do trust, and whatever that is. Um, that's where we would expect uh, mimetic propaganda to play out. Um, can you just for the listeners explain what deepfakes is? Yeah, sure. So deepfakes are um, basically you know, artificially generated video. Uh, right now, um, the ability to make uh, make it look like someone like a political figure is, is saying something that they're not saying um, is an emergent technology. Um, and it's, it's a very broad term. Um, it can also be used for any kind of artificially generated video. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me also wonder about the sort of um, mass cultures of these two internets because it seems like they would, uh, you know, if right now we're at a place where the mass culture of China and the mass culture of the U.S. are actually much closer than they've probably ever been in the past, um, that they would separate out if the means of distribution are that separate. Yep. Yeah, and I think I think in some ways that's, we're already seeing that. We're already seeing very different um, internets and internet cultures, um, and you already see that even without censorship, you already see in, um, in uh, many countries um, a very different sort of internet culture, and so you don't even need physical infrastructure to have a different kind of culture emerging nationally. And do you imagine in 2038, in this world that we're talking about, that there would be, say, you know, um, at computer activists inside, for instance, the U.S. who are basically sympathetic to the tranquil web and we're trying to undermine the Libra web from the inside and vice versa? Oh, certainly. Yeah. You, you will see um, kind of the, the new the emergence of digital moles and what, what does that look like, right? Um, and uh, so you can imagine uh, that uh, the, the kind of border zones, what, what does a digital checkpoint look like? Um, and uh, how, do you, how do you check for, um, for potential espionage? Um, you can imagine that rhetoric and also the practices would, would, uh, would therefore de- increase um, with the decrease in trust between the, the two systems. And that's why I would have to sign in with a thumbprint, for example. That's right. Yeah, every, and you know, with it may be thumbprint, it might be your your uh, retina scan. Um, but basically, to really secure the internet in this way, um, you would need to tie it to people's biometrics, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in that future, which we're already kind of again seeing emerge, uh, this uh, your your offline self would be tied to your online self. You can no longer hide that you're um, that you're not a dog on the internet. Yeah. One thing that is almost certainly going to change, and that you talk about in in your vision, is that climate change is obviously going to have a huge impact on how people live and where. So I'm wondering, is there going to be a, a sort of a simultaneous um, enforcement of borders around the Libra web, uh, of physical borders around the Libra web countries versus the tranquil net countries? Um, a little bit, I think. Um, and you know, I, I call it the Bering firewall, which is this imaginary wall, uh, firewall across the kind of longitude that the Bering Strait defines. 
Um, and uh, you can imagine that the the infrastructure, um, which is already true, um, plays out along borders. Um, and so um, probably there would be some modes of enforcement. Um, but the way we're seeing it play out, um, it's kind of continent by continent. Um, it, it might it might not be as um, as obvious, I think. You know, it's actually surprising when you actually look at how um, how the wires, uh, you know, the kind of submarine cables of the internet kind of flow. Um, you know, they, they hit touch points that are that are already ports and ports of entry for shipping and, and other borders. And so um, we're already seeing um, how um, internet infrastructure ties to borders. One other thing I, I wanted to ask about was the sort of manufacturing and logistics across across borders and, and between these two internets. Because as we've seen, the last 30 years has sort of transformed electronics manufacturing by locating a huge amount of it. And, the, you know, a huge portion of the supply chain for most of the biggest computer companies in the world happens in China. And like, one city in China. Yeah, exactly, in Shenzhen. And uh, and Bloomberg just published a story um, sort of suggesting or claiming over the protests of Apple and Amazon, I should say, that a number of U.S. companies have um, installed compromised uh, chips in their servers. So in a world like this, where the Cold War is much more open and apparent and where we're sort of separating out those internets, does the supply chain get broken too? I mean, it just, is stuff made in the U.S.? Stuff would have to be made somewhere else, yeah. Um, because regardless of, um, you know, the, the, the the Bloomberg story is still very much under contention, I think, but it does point to a reality, which is um, which is that most of the world's technical infrastructure, whether it's your phones, uh, self-driving uh, vehicles, quadcopters, um, almost all of that is built in one place in China, in Shenzhen. Almost Apple's almost entire production chain, right, um, is in Shenzhen. So in this future. Um, uh, there would need to be different manufacturing hubs. Um, and so a lot of that will depend on where that can actually be done. Um, China's already building and thinking about building manufacturing hubs um, throughout Southeast Asia and uh, the African continent. Um, and uh, uh, you can imagine that um, in 20 years, uh, the U.S. and, and the uh, LibreWeb would have to build an alternative uh, kind of manufacturing system. It may not be in the U.S. I think that the patterns of manufacturing colonization uh, will suggest that it's actually probably going to be somewhere in the global south. Um, but either way, it'll be somewhere that... Um, that the, the LibreWeb can control. So say South America or Latin America would, would potentially just become the new supply chain provider for, for most electronics manufacturers. You can imagine that, yeah. And uh, um, and when you think about um, where a lot of uh, manufacturing of goods already comes from, it is Latin America. So, so you're talking about um, really throughout all of this interview, you've been talking about what seems like a basically stable um, kind of Cold War equilibrium where we have these two powers and some other some of their third-party states that are in some relationship to the two superpowers. But I'm also wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happens from there. I mean, um, presumably that's not a permanent equilibrium. And, um, you know, can you imagine the ways in which, say, the um, the Tranquil Web defeats the, you know, the Libre Web and becomes the only internet again, kind of like subsumes all of the alternatives or vice versa? I mean, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think one one way to think about it is uh, what are the weaknesses in the supply chain uh, that would uh, that might destabilize this. And so, for instance, the discovery of tin and coltan mines, um, uh, or a uh, major climate event that, that affects uh, the, the ability to, to house server farms, or um, to uh, to to kind of control your supply chain, might actually uh, throw off the balance of one side or the other. Um, and so, Shenzhen is housed in the Pearl River Delta, which is a larger larger region of Southeast China. It's very vulnerable to climate change, um, and so is Shanghai. Um, um, uh, most of China is actually very vulnerable to climate change. So, um, so could climate change uh, be a deep stabilizing event in terms of the control of internet infrastructure? 
we're talking a lot about mines as important uh, infrastructural kind of prizes. Um, and you could see the countries in which those mines are located, which if I'm not mistaken, is mostly sub-Saharan Africa, um, able, you know, if they're able to control the flow of resources in and out of those countries, as those resources become more and more expensive and more and more important, that that's a potential third uh, power or sort of third set of powers that um, could upset this balance. That's potentially right. Um, and I think what's complicated there is um, uh, with China's new foreign policy um, initiatives, uh, they're, um, they're already investing in a lot of infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa um, that is built on systems of debt um, mm-hmm. that, that very much look like the previous systems of debt from Western powers. Um, and so it, it could be that um, there, there could be a destabilizing influence or um, it could be that uh, the, the kind of systems of, of economics and, and debt um, keep keep uh, those countries uh, in, in check in, in some ways. And certainly the history of colonization would, would suggest that that's what would happen. Do you have any more questions? I want to give you a chance, um, because I know this is something that we talked about, to talk about how, you know, this is not the cheeriest future we can imagine. So there are things that we possibly could be thinking about and talking about and doing ourselves now in the present to forestall it. And I know you had some ideas about that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, um, I think one is recognizing that we, we are entering um, uh, in the world a, a new sort of rhetoric um, between uh, and the U.S. and China. I think we're already starting to see um, this rhetoric growing um, from both sides, um, and it's very much a uh, rhetoric about technology um, and trade. Um, and so, uh, recognizing that is um, says what are the types of ways we can try to um, create a kind of cross border understanding. Um, uh, um, um, and then um, are there kind of uh, new negotiations and new standards that need to be built to kind of create more um, cooperation um, uh, between between these two worlds, um, if that's possible. Uh, the other thing I think is also that uh, recognizing that the technology that's being built um, is it's not, um, at least by citizens, it's not bound by borders. Um, there are so many uh, people from China who come to the United States to study um, and then so many people from the United States who go to China to produce things. They go to um, a lot of R&D labs from West Western startups and big companies like Apple and Snap um, are set up in Shenzhen. Um, and so amongst people um, and not amongst states, uh, there is a lot of kind of cross-border interaction. Um, and then also um, the EU, is, I think, is also a big place for artificial intelligence technologies are being built. Um, and so if these communities can, can you know, if we can think about ground-up ways um, for, for communities to develop more kind of international cooperation understanding, um, even as state rhetoric is, 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 is fostering distrust, um, I think uh, there might be some potential there. Um, and then the, the other thing is um, is the, the Toronto Declaration, which was made at RightsCon uh, this this past year, um, uh, was you know, signed on by a number of, uh, of civil society organizations. Recognized that artificial intelligence technologies um, uh, should be built with international human rights standards in mind. And people like David Kay at the UN have talked about the importance of building content moderation off of international human rights standards. And so. Also recognizing we have these kind of international bodies, we have standards, we have uh, uh, kind of these agreements between states and they, they don't, obviously they don't uh, always help, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, do we have standards around uh, technology, infrastructure, artificial intelligence? Um, what are the frameworks we can build? I think these are open questions, but I think they're, it's urgent that we, we try to address them now mm-hmm. and recognize the rhetoric that's being built um, as we speak. Well, 
We like to end these by talking about the predictions on a sort of three-factor scale. Um, uh, credibility. Likelihood. Likelihood, thank you. And uh, panic, the amount of panic it sends us into, terror. Um, and we would love, we like to invite our, our guests to participate in our, um, our judgment. David, how credible did you find this prediction? Totally credible. I mean, it seems as though we're already looking at this world in miniature, in, you know, in sort of premature form. And it seems believable that it would develop into a more mature conflict of the kind um, that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it, and it fits together very well. I thought there's a um, there's a consistency to it. And uh, as you say, like, this is in many ways, the internet that we experience the internets that we experience every day, um, just sort of drawn out to the most extreme possible vision of what they look like. I know this is a difficult question to answer on, but uh, how credible did you find your own prediction? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hmm, that is a terrible question to ask me. <laughs> well, this is your opportunity to say, you know, <laughs> to well, totally. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess I'll say uh, you guys did encourage me to think of the most outlandish future <laughs> possible. Um, uh, but um, I, I, I am worried. I am yeah. worried about uh, the the kind of rifts that we're seeing in the internet, and that um, that they are playing a lot. You know, they are kind of being tied to state power and state uh, kind of state influence operations, and so. Um, um, I, I'm deeply concerned. Um, I, I, I would hope that the, this kind of very extreme vision doesn't doesn't come to play. Yeah. Um, but it is grounded in, in kind of my real world experience and yeah. traveling um, between different borders, and, and so um, it's very much grounded in how I already experienced the internet, which is um, which is playing out along national boundaries. Which gets us, I think, to um, likelihood. And I mean, I guess my feeling is that probably a more moderate version of what you're describing is is likelier to happen. That is that um, there are different internets out there with different sets of rules, but maybe not engaged in quite such an explicit two-part rivalry that governs everything that happens on the internet and the, in the planet. Um, but that, you know, where you are in the world definitely shapes the internet that you use and that there are, there's running conflict between a number of those internets. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, the sort of baseline idea that we're we're increasingly seeing at least two separate kind of internets is likely to just continue. It seems unlikely that there's going to be something that changes that particular dynamic. Um, it feels to me like the big wild card here is how the big corporations react and what, and frankly, like what kind of power they're able to enforce or to take over the needs of sovereign states to assert themselves. The last thing that I think is interesting is this question, you know, it's the LibreWeb seems perfect to me in understanding the dynamics of the American internet, but I wonder too a little bit if the kind of um, constant partisan political strife as the like foundational um, concept of the internet is itself a real like a weakness that isn't doesn't allow it to to sort of develop beyond that that maybe even within this this prediction are the seeds of its own destruction um, on how likely do you think your prediction was yeah I think um, I, w- I would agree I think some there might be some more sort of moderate um, kind of version of this uh, that again we're seeing play out that it's uh, that states are um, starting to um, exert power, um, and to your to your point about uh, corporations and seeing how they play out here, um, I think we're going to see that with uh, with Google Dragonfly. Mm-hmm. Right? I think uh, seeing how a non Chinese corporation engages with uh, with the Chinese internet and Chinese government will be one of those indicators of how corporations negotiate power. Uh, the other one will be seeing how um, how GDPR um, stuff coming out of Brazil with the uh, Marco Seville and other sorts of regulations as more um, regional powers and state powers in, uh, set up regulations. Um, we're going to see we're go- we're going to see that exactly play out and see how much power corporations really have um, and how much influence they have versus how much states do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I will also let you answer first. How terrified does this prediction make you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's it's almost on two levels here. Um, you know, I think that the tricky thing here is where it's going to be kind of a brave new world sort of scenario. It, it may not be as terrifying for most people. Um, I think we're still going to have our cat videos, our, our Netflix um, shows. We're still going to have access to our friends. Um, um, but if you are an activist, um, if you are a person from a marginalized community, um, person at risk, or if you live in an authoritarian environment, it's already terrifying. Um, I think it's already, it's already a time uh, where a lot of people are already very scared. And so um, uh, pending any major changes. And again, um, I do think some changes might happen. I do think this moment of conversation uh, might actually lead to some shifts. But pending any change, um, I think it'll just get more terrifying for everybody because it's already quite scary for a lot of people. Yeah, that's well put. David, how terrified does it make you? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I wish that I could see some reason for hope in this vision. Um, <laughs> that's, that's our tagline. That's the tagline for the show. It's like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess like moving to Kenya. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm I'm there. It, I, I will say, it, it, having this conversation makes me less terrified than say reading the UN report on climate change. But uh, only because we're talking about human beings still being alive and moving around and interacting with each other. Not obviously not the ideal way for us to do it. And I think on your right that there's a lot of people who are already terrified, and this is only going to increase the terror that a lot of those people feel and kind of. Uh, move um, move even more people into that I'm terrified terrified thing. I do like the idea of non-aligned states, of moving to Kenya, of having places where, you know, if you have the resources at least, you can sort of hold out against another, yet another all-encompassing Cold War. But, you know, I, I guess at least humans are still alive. At least there's still, uh, you know, culture. At least there's still interaction. Um, and I guess we'll just cross our fingers and hope that we can <laughs> we can prevent this. Thanks to Anshel Mina for sharing her vision of 2038 with us. To stay on top of our present timeline and rapidly changing culture, business, media, and politics, please visit the new Intelligencer at nymag.com slash Intelligencer. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor is David Haskell, and our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss. I'm Max Reed. That's David Wallace-Wells. See you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>